0: Next week, we're calling Commitment Sunday. Last week, if you had a chance to be here, you heard a vision for what we want to do with this avenue to Jesus and creating this space next door, and you were all invited to be part of this. And so uh, we passed out flyers and commitment cards, and we're asking that those commitment cards come back by next Sunday. And so if by next Sunday, if you could possibly turn those in, you can either place them in the offering later on. Uh, today, we'll, we'll be taking the offering right after uh, my message. And uh, you can either do that or you can uh, mail them to the office or however you, you want to do that today. Uh, it would be fantastic. But one thing I want to uh, also just remind you of is that we can't do this. We can't do this without Everyone. Like this is, a, this is an exciting, such an exciting opportunity and we just need everyone involved. And so one thing that we have been saying over and over in this process is it's not about equal gifts, it's about equal sacrifice. And the stories that I'm hearing from people about how the, they're allowing God to challenge them to say, how can I participate in the avenue? It's just really, really exciting. And so as we turn and, and open up God's word today, I, I lift that challenge and re, uh, reiterate that challenge to you. And just uh, would let you know that next Sunday is is the day to turn those in. All right, Genesis chapter 22. Um, I have, and, and some of you might know this, a deep love for Coca-Cola. Like I, I have talked about this uh, in my life uh, many, many times that that I just really love Coca-Cola. And um, I... I refer to Coca-Cola as as the nectar, and uh, and so uh, you you guys catch a theme with me. There's a lot of different kinds of food that I really appreciate, but you know that I love Coca-Cola. Many of you, I've talked about this for a long time. Uh, in fact, uh, Clarissa and I have a a feud about which soda is better. If we go to a restaurant, she will refuse to order. A soda if they drink Coke, and I will refuse to order a soda if they only serve Pepsi, because uh, Pepsi is just water and sugar. I'm telling you, that's all it is. And so when we were over in Yemen uh, a few years back, when I had less uh, gray in my hair, uh, all I could find in Yemen was, was Pepsi. And so Thomas Keckler snapped that photo of me, uh, uh, yeah, pouting over the Pepsi that I needed to drink. But Um, A few years ago, realizing that I was an... uh, uh, probably drink way too much Coca-Cola in a day, I decided that I needed to replace Coke with something different. So I learned to drink coffee, and, uh, which was a journey in and of itself to go from despising coffee to now loving coffee. But uh, I, I thought, you know, I'll just kind of replace the Coca-Cola that I'm drinking too much of with too much coffee. And I figured that would, you know, seem to work out. The problem was then I started drinking coffee and Coca-Cola and that whole plan didn't work out. But what I did do... Uh, eventually as I decided that I was a, a Coke addict. And uh, don't take that the wrong way, but I, I was a Coke addict. And so um, I, I decided that, that I really, really, really needed to just get rid of Coke. So uh, a little over a year ago, I drank my last Coca-Cola And I haven't had a Coca-Cola for over a year. And it's not big a deal. I I don't know how many days, uh, 463, but I I don't know exactly how many days it's been since I had a Coca-Cola. But... It's been it's been a long time, and uh, and and so I haven't had one, and because I just kind of realized that I couldn't just drink one, and so it'd be better to have no Coca Cola. And one of the interesting things is, uh, I still today even just holding this can makes me kind of start salivating and looking at it because I just love this stuff. And um, and one of the things that I realized. Uh, In this whole process, not only was it good for me to not drink soda anymore, but it was really, really good for me because in in a a silly, unexpected way, uh, on the days when I craved Coca-Cola, I learned that God was enough for me. Now, I realize it's really silly, and this is really trivial to talk about that in terms of a, a silly soda, but in a, in a way that I did not expect, I rec- begin to recognize that God is enough for me. And he's worth way more to me than a stupid craving that I have for Coca-Cola. And as silly and as trivial as that might seem to you and I today, um, that is a fraction or a piece of the same lesson that Abraham learned in Genesis chapter 22. To an infinitesimal scale, Abraham learned this same lesson on a much greater scale. He learned more and more that the God of promise is enough, that the God of promise is enough. So, we've been in this series on Abraham, and, and we've taken a couple breaks because we've been talking a lot about this avenue and, and stewardship along the avenue. And, and we've taken kind of a break from this series. But I want to come back to it, and I want to remind you of a couple things. The first thing is way back in Genesis 12, I want to remind you that God, way back in Genesis 12, God spoke to Abraham and he made him a promise. And God's covenant or promise to Abraham were these four things. He said, I'll make you into a great nation, which was a problem because Abraham had no descendants. He said, I'll make your name great. That was the second promise. He the third one is, you'll be a great blessing to the entire world. And the fourth promise he said is, I'm going to give you a great land. And he spelled out the borders of this promised land for Abraham. And so, from that point in Genesis chapter 12, 25 years passed before the birth of the promised child, Isaac. 25 years. And now, from that point, by the time we get to Genesis 22, 10 to 15 more years have passed. It's been 35 to 40 years since God originally gave this promise to Abraham. And God's instruction now, today, after all this time of Abraham learning to walk with the promise of God, God, God's promise to Abraham right now, God's instructions to him rather, is to take this promised child, this promised son, and go and sacrifice this promised child on the altar to God. And what we're going to see today as we look at this account is that the God of promise is enough. There are some words in this text that teach us how Abraham learned this lesson. And these words jump right out of the text at us. And the first word is the word test. As we look at how Abraham learned that the promise of God is enough, the first word that jumps out at us is the word test. Look at chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. There's that word. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Some ominous instructions for the beginning of this passage. This word test is a really interesting word. The word test here, when God says He's tested Abraham, the word test has to do with this it's a testing of a value, a quality, or an attribute in a person. A testing of a value, quality, or attribute in a person. That is the test here. God is testing a value, property, or quality, or an attribute in Abraham. Now it's interesting, we think, well, why would God do that? Well, think about it this way. People do this with God all the time. We put God to the test all the time. We put his goodness to the test or his faithfulness to the test. We question and we say, God, are you really good? God, are you really faithful? Show me the extent of that. We test him all the time. And in this way, God now tests people. The quality God is most interested in testing, and we see it right here in, in Genesis 22, the quality he's most interested in testing is the quality of faith faith. When God tests something, what he does is he takes that quality that he's testing and he stretches it to the limit. The primary quality that God is testing here is faith. Now, if you think about this rubber band here that I have, this is sort of the, the quality that God, how God tests the quality. God takes this quality He's looking for in Abraham, and He begins to stretch it. Where is the breaking point? Now it's important to note that God is not stretching Abraham here, although Abraham is stretched. God is not just being mean and tormenting and saying, "Hey, hey, hey, let's see how far we can take Abraham till he breaks." No, He's looking to see the extent. Or the quality of the faith that Abraham has. How far can he stretch it till it breaks? How far can it go? God is stretching Abraham's faith here in this passage. Now why, we have some questions that this brings up. First of all, why would God do this? Why would God test Abraham? Especially since God is omniscient which means he knows everything. So God already knows what Abraham is going to do. Why would God test Abraham? Well, there's an important difference here, and the difference is between cognitive knowledge and experiential knowledge. God could know what Abraham was going to do, but experiencing it is a different level of knowledge. Um, I, this happens to me all the time in my marriage. So uh, like, for instance, there's a difference between knowing something and experiencing it. One of the things that my wife loves, and I forgot to ask her if I could use her as an illustration. With, I beg your forgiveness. But uh, one of the things that is really meaningful to Clarissa is when I think about her and and then when, when I'm out and about, if I think about her in some way and get her a little something that shows her that i was thinking about her so i might be at the gas station and and see that her favorite drink there in the cooler you know like clarissa loves just little things they don't cost a lot to to grab one of those or if i was happen to be walking through the floral section she's happy with just a little daisy you know or or her favorite candy bar things like that Uh, in fact she was going through uh the the store one day and she she'll just buy me little things like this all the time and i know that this is meaningful to her when I do this. My brain doesn't work that way, right? And I do stupid things all the time as a husband, then just forget this. But it's not enough for her to just know that I know this. I actually need to go and do these things. She longs to experience these things as my wife. That's the difference between cognitive knowledge and experiential knowledge. And so what God is going to do is to stretch Abraham's faith to the limit. And something beautiful is going to happen here. Not only for Abraham, but also for you and me. Now look at the text again. The story continues. Verse 3 of chapter 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. So Abraham packs up and he sets out on the journey. Now, we have questions, a lot of questions about this. And the most obvious one is, what about this whole human sacrifice deal? Okay, Because this is troubling, that God would tell Abraham to go sacrifice his child. And in fact, um, later in Scripture, God expressly forbids this practice. So why would God tell Abraham to do this? Why doesn't Abraham object? Why isn't this repulsive to Abraham? Why doesn't Abraham go, hey God, if you're the kind of God that would tell me to kill my kid, I'm out. Why doesn't Abraham do that? Well, we can find answers in in Abraham's culture. And it's so important to understand when we read the Scriptures, we have to look at the Scriptures through the lens of the person who is writing it and and the original audience to whom he was writing it. And so when we look at this through our 21st century eyes, we see we're repulsed by this. But for Abraham, in the culture in which he lived... This was not an uncommon practice. In fact, in the ancient Near Eastern pagan cultures, it was common practice. In the Canaanite culture specifically, they had a God of fertility. And the God of the fertility who provided children in this this Canaanite culture, they believed that that God had the right to require some of those kids back because he gave them in the first place. Well, this was troubling to us, but... Child sacrifice was common practice. Now, it's true that the, God, the true God, Yahweh, has never before commanded this and later would describe it as te- detestable. But for now, it seemed to Abraham to be a logical conclusion. It seemed to him in his culture that if God wanted to require this, God could. God, after all, was the one who had provided Isaac to him. And so, however saddened Abraham may have been, he's not dumbfounded by it because of the culture in which he lives. Now, how do we, the next question we ask is, okay, exactly how is Abraham's faith being tested? Now, it seems obvious at first glance how Abraham's faith is being tested. I mean, he he's asked to sacrifice his child, his only child. Well, think about it this way. Abraham has faithfully, for the last 35 to 40 years, walked with God. Whenever God made Abraham a promise, Abraham seemed to follow through with his end of the deal. That he, it was an unconditional promise that God gave to Abraham. And Abraham said, I will follow through by trusting and believing in that promise. And he's been walking with this promise of God. But think about, it's a little different up to this point. At every point, Abraham has stands to gain something from trusting in the promise of God. He would have been promised land for his descendants. Well, that seems like gain for him. He'd been promised fame. Again, easy to see his own gain in that. He'd been promised uh, uh, land, fame. He'd been pro- promised a child. Everything he'd been promised, he'd gained something out of. He'd been given wealth, which is really easy for us to see. And he'd been given a son. And it's easy for us to see up to this point, every promise that God makes, Abraham seems to gain from it. But now, if his son, and, and the scripture refers to, this, to his only son, some of you would say, hey wait Dave, uh, I remember Abraham had another son, a son before Isaac, that was the son Ishmael. And re- if you remember, Ishmael was the son of the slave woman, and, uh, and a, few, uh, a few chapters ago, God told Abraham whose wife Sarah wanted to send Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. And we saw God's provision for Ishmael in that. But in sending Ishmael and Hagar away, essentially Abraham is saying, they're dead to me. They're off. Abraham has no contact with them anymore. He has effectively one son, Isaac. In the question that is in Abraham's mind and the test that brings up in his quality of faith is this. If I no longer have a son, will God be enough? Because at this point, if he loses this aspect of a promise, all he really has is God. Will God be enough? Which one of us hasn't been in this place? Which one of us hasn't been a place where we said, life didn't turn out the way I wanted it? all I have is God and is he enough? We have our dreams. We even have Christ's kingdom dreams, but if they don't turn out, if all is taken away, is God enough? This is the question before Abraham. I I think back in my life and I have a, a very vivid memory of being 19 years old in college, having just broken up with my girlfriend. And uh, and having just broken up with my girlfriend, it seemed to me, in, and it's almost comical now to look back on it. But I remember feeling very much at the time. It seemed to me that there would be no other woman in this world that would have me, and I would probably spend my entire life alone. And the question that I asked in my mind was this: Is God enough for me? Is He enough? Maybe you're in a situation where your marriage didn't turn out the way you wanted and you feel lonely and you think, is God enough? Maybe your career didn't turn out the way you expected and you're asking the question, is God enough? Maybe you went through bankruptcy. Maybe you lost a relationship. Maybe you even lost a loved one who you care about deeply. And the question is, is God enough? This is the stretch for Abraham. He has faith in the promise of God. And now, if the benefits of the promise are removed, is God enough? Look at verse 4, what happens. In verse 4, on the third day, so they've been traveling for three days, Abraham looked up and saw this place in the distance. They traveled for three days. Abraham had three long days of travel to mull over this question. Three days to think, is God enough? The promise of God is enough. And when tested, our faith, this quality is tested, we answer that the God of promise is enough. The story continues, and there's another word that helps us think about how Abraham learned in this test. If the first word is test, the second word that we're talking about is trust. Abraham now learns through this test that he can unequivocally trust the God of promise. So Abraham and Isaac, he's with his servants, they pack up, they take their servants, they head out, they travel these three days, and now Mount Moriah is in sight. And look what happens in verse 5. The story continues. He says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there to the mountain. We will worship and then worship. We will come back to you. What, what, why does Abraham say, we will come back to you? I mean, didn't God clearly command him, go and sacrifice your son? Why will we come back? Why does he say this? Well, we can imagine a couple of reasons. Possibly he says, I don't want to tell my servants what I'm going to do. I, I just don't want to deal with that. Or he just could flat out lie to him or he could say you know what i don't really intend to go through with this like "Mm." or he's saying i believe that something supernatural is going to happen we learn a little bit about this motivation from hebrews chapter 11. i love it when scripture helps us understand scripture in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews writing on this passage says this, By faith, when Abraham, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice the, his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. And then this verse here in, in 19 says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead... And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So here's what Abraham reasoned, and the author of Hebrews helps us with this. On those three days, he says, this doesn't make any sense. The God of promise, who has never let me down, who has always been faithful, promised me that Isaac would be the heir of a great nation. Not some other son, Isaac. He promised me that. So if he right now tells me to sacrifice this child, the only way I can reconcile this is that God intends then to raise Isaac from the dead after I sacrifice him. Abraham's faith had been stretched to the limit. And this is God's character. Abraham is understanding something really important about God here. And that important thing is this. The God of promise can be trusted. And he is worthy to be trusted. Even when in our mind it's hard to make sense of it all. God of promise can be trusted. The story continues. Abraham prepares to make this rest of the journey without uh, his servants. And so he takes Isaac and he loads this wood upon his son's back. He puts it on his back and they head out the mountain. It's important to remember that Isaac is old enough to carry the wood. He's probably somewhere between 10 and 15 years old at this point. Isaac's old enough and big enough to carry the wood for the sacrifice. And and he carries it carries it up the mountain. And of course, friends, this whole picture is foreshadowing of another's only son who would ascend the hill carrying his own wood. This whole picture is foreshadowing Jesus. But this time, 2,000 years later, Jesus would go up that hill, accompanied not by Abraham, but by Roman soldiers. And a sacrifice would be made. As Abraham and Isaac walk up the mountain with the son who will be the sacrifice, carrying his own wood. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. And they go up to Mount Moriah. Now, there's some discussion about this hill, Mount Moriah, this, this mountain. And, and some people have argued that this is, is clearly Jerusalem, because later on in Chronicles, we have a reference to Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But linguistically speaking, there's there's a lot of ambiguity in this in this discussion, and it doesn't really matter at this point whether this hill that Abraham would sacrifice Isaac on was the same hill that Jesus was sacrificed on two thousand years later. What's important is that in the author in the mind of the author in Chronicles, he is relating clearly. This, to the temple sacrifice, which later relates us to Jesus' sacrifice. These are clearly tied together. Well, Isaac's no dummy. He's carrying this wood. His dad's got the fire. He says, hey, dad, um, couldn't help but notice something's missing. All right, you know, you got the fire, and I got the wood. Uh, We're kind of missing an animal to sacrifice. And so, you know, Isaac, being astute enough to see that, says, where is it? And look at verse 8 of chapter 22. Abraham answered his son. I love this. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And the two of them went on together. That word God will provide literally means God sees what's going on. God sees what's going on. Abraham answers basically, to his son. Isaac, not sure how all this is going to work out. But I believe God sees the details of this situation. The God of promise sees the details. And the NIV translated, God will provide. And that is a great way of saying God provides the details. He sees it. And Abraham trusts God to work out the details. Later on, in fact, he names God... Yahweh Yara, or uh, in some ways, the King James Version translated that, Jehovah Jireh. It means God will provide because God's a God who works out the details. You know, life stretches you and me just like life is stretching the faith of Abraham right now. And I can't tell you today that life will be easy for you. And I can't say that nothing hard will ever come your way. But I can tell you that God can be trusted because God will provide. He works out the details. And this is where the God of promise requires trust. What tough thing is in front of you right now? What tough thing are you facing right now that you need the God of the details to show up? And you need to trust the God of details. Abraham is not the only one building trust in this story. Look at Isaac. Imagine the trust that Isaac must place in his father at this point. I mean, he's old enough to carry the wood. He's old enough to ask questions. And Abraham's well over 100 years old by now. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Isaac had to help get himself up on the altar. Isaac would have to probably build the altar and crawl up on the altar. He's old enough to recognize something weird is going on here, but he trusts his father implicitly enough to do this. Look at what the text says in verse 9. When they reached the place God told them about Abraham, they built the altar there, and he arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Isaac clearly had to be helping him through this process. And and Isaac is allowing because he trusts his father. You know, we live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age where it's really difficult for us to trust people. And at some point, if you are alive, people will hurt you. And it's easy to carry this skepticism over into our relationship with God. But today you need to understand that you can trust the God of promise. Give your life in total abandon to him. Live like Jesus. That is radical obedience and it's hard and it's scary, but it's worth it. Abraham doesn't know how it's going to turn out, but he knows that he can trust the God of promise. The Heavenly Father who gave us His only Son, Jesus, can be trusted. Jesus knew agony. Jesus knew sorrow. And this is how God loves you. And God can be trusted because He earned it in Jesus. So for Abraham, this was a case of walking with God and remembering that he could trust God. The third word that I want to talk about today is in God's name that we already mentioned and it's the word provision test trust and provision because God always provides our deepest need so Abraham has his son there tied to the altar and look at verse 10 then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son One thing that struck me when I read that verse is how dispassionate that verse is. It's sort of just the facts, right? Abraham reached the knife. He went to slay his son there's, we can imagine how Abraham felt. We can imagine his hand with the knife trembling as he held it above his head. We can imagine his thoughts, second guessing, what am I doing? And how am I going to explain this to Sarah when I get home? You know, we can imagine all this stuff. We can imagine his son's life flashing before his eyes. We can imagine him shaking, but the text is completely dispassionate. The text just says the facts. This is what he did. It's simply trust and obedience. Look at what happens. At this moment, verse 11, when his hand is ready to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, Abraham replied. In this repetition, We hear the urgency from the angel of the Lord. Abraham, Abraham. But look at Abraham's response. And I don't know if you caught this, but in verse 11, it is the same phrase that is issued in verse 1 when God first came to Abraham. God said, Abraham, and and Abraham replied, here I am. That word in Hebrew is such a, a weird word. Here I am is one word in Hebrew. And it's not, even, it's not even a sentence. It doesn't have any grammar to it. It's just a response. It's just like a word. He said, and it, you could be, translate it, behold. It's just a, here I am is a good translation. It's just a, like, okay, God, what? I'm ready. Whatever you have. It's the same response now that he's holding the knife over his son as it was when everything was peachy fine and and there were no problems. Same word, I'm ready, here I am, behold. And so in verse 12, the angel says, don't lay a hand on the boy. He said, don't do anything to him. Now, I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looks up, And he finds a ram there caught in the bush by its horns. And Abraham takes this and he sacrifices it instead of his son. And then in verse 14, he names God. He says, The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh. And to this day, it is said, On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And friends... The parallels to Jesus here are so obviously striking that we cannot look at this and not think of Jesus because Jesus, the only son who carried his own wood to the mountain, a lonely mountain, became a substitute for you and me. But later, while Abraham's son was spared, God's son was not and here Jesus, who takes the place of your sin and my sin on that cross, was not spared. God is still in the business of providing. He did it in Jesus. And let us never forget this provision of Christ on the cross for us. The God who loved Abraham enough to stop his hand from slaying Isaac, that same God loved us enough to not stop the Romans from slaying his son God provides Abraham has not wavered in his trust of God because Abraham knows that God is all that Abraham needs and he takes care of the details we can trust him and he provides for who he is not just for what he does so as we circle back to the beginning this is Abraham's test Would he give up the promise of God for God himself? Would Abraham trust God that God would be enough? And that's the test. And God did, and Abraham did trust God. And God did provide. It is sometimes hard for us to get our minds around an application because none of us have ever put our child on an altar and like Abraham did. There's no way to answer this question what would we do if we were in Abraham's shoes? But one thing we can ask of ourselves is, would God be enough if we gave up his promise? God hasn't promised us an earthly nation. God hasn't promised us wealth or fame. God hasn't promised us descendants in a great nation. God hasn't made those promises to us. But one promise he has given us to, to us in Christ is eternity with him so a parallel question for us would be would god be enough if there was no eternity with him i suppose that's the test abraham did trust god would god be enough for you and me even if there was no eternity would he be enough right now In the 70s, a singer by the name of Andre Crouch sang this song. And in the line from the 70s, it says this. But if heaven never were promised to me, neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth it just having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, he came and brought me the light. Is God enough for you? Is he enough worth more than what you don't have yet? Is he worth more than what you've lost? Is he worth more than what you thought you should have? Is he enough? In a very real sense, God is calling you and me to live for today. Is God enough for you? That's the kingdom, that's the call of the kingdom of heaven. God is enough. Aaron Fish is going to come right now and close us in prayer as our ushers come forward. And and we're going to pray that this God who is enough, the God who provides, would lead us.